If anybody's heard my testimony, I'm not going to give it, don't worry, but that's about 17 minutes in itself. Um, when I was young, I had a grandmother. For all her faults, if you ask my mum, she was soundly saved, and she taught me the scriptures as a child. And I never, ever faltered from those. I always remember those, no matter where I went. But you see, when I had secondary school, when you're in class with 12, 13, 14-year-olds, obviously they become your peers and they become experts. And of course, at that age, they go, God's not real. The Bible's just an outdated book. And you start to get all this mud thrown on top of all the stuff you knew when you were younger. And when I became a Christian, I had to climb back out of that mud and reclaim the Bible for myself. So I've had a great time over the last four or five, five days, spending time with the Lord and reading and just reconfirming to myself um, how true the Bible is. What I've entitled the Bible, or this reading tonight, or this message tonight, is Why Believe the Bible. There are many in here that are unmovable, unshakable in their faith. I praise God for that. But I'm saved nine years, and I'm still learning and growing. And I still hear things today, and it absolutely amazes me. And some of the things I'm going to finish off on is how the Bible was more accurate than science up to even two and a half, three thousand years ago. So if you've heard some of it before, I do apologize, but I found it absolutely fascinating. But if you have your Bibles, could you turn with me please to Second Timothy? Just as a basis of a reading. Second Timothy chapter four. I'm beginning to read it first one. I'm just going to take the first eight verses. I charge ye therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So we trust that the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Just bow down a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this evening for this people that has gathered to hear your word. And we give you thanks that your word is eternal, that it's true, and Lord, that has stood the test of time. And we tell you this evening that we love you, we worship you, and we exalt you. And we thank you above all for the greatest gift that you could ever have given us, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would ever ask, what could we ever do to achieve salvation for ourselves? And the answer is absolutely nothing. We thank you tonight for grace and mercy and for that love that was poured out upon us at Calvary's tree. So Lord, I ask you now just to 
be with us, still our hearts, open our ears to what you have to say. For us in Jesus' wonderful name I pray, giving you thanks. Amen. Well, I have a few notes and things here, so if I do try and read off them, I'll do my very best to look up and look some in the face. But I think I'd, uh, I'll never make fun of the pastor again. I always did, but standing up there on a Sunday morning and standing up here tonight, it's not as easy as it looks, but he makes it look so, so easy. <clears throat> so tonight I want to talk to you about real faith and what it means to have total reliance on the Word of God. In our opening reading, Paul is writing to Timothy to warn him of those that would not endure sound doctrine. And he says, Having itching ears, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on the fables. The fascinating thing about this is Paul is writing from a jail cell. That's point number one. I haven't even written that down as a point, but point number one. Who writes these types of things from a jail cell? To tell people to rejoice, to be long-suffering, to love. All the things that he did teach when he wrote those letters. And he says, my departure is at hand. He doesn't say go out and destroy the world. He doesn't say go out and wreck the churches like he did in time past. But he tells them to carry on in the faith. Now our hope and faith comes totally and absolutely from the spoken word of God. The Bible is totally unique. Who believes that? Who believes that? I believe that. It stands alone because it is the very word of God transferred to paper. There's not merely the thoughts of men or scribes. Many so-called Christians today try to make room for science in order to accommodate those that struggle against modern atheistic theories rather than taking God's word for what it really is. God's holy inspired word and truth revealed to mankind. I tell you another thing that really fascinates me. I love listening to debates between evolutionists and those that defend the Bible. Has anybody really got into those types of debates? I would challenge you to go and listen to some because they encourage me every time. It doesn't matter who's debating what. There's a guy called William Lane Craig from the United States of America, and I never heard of anybody like him. There's not an atheist or an evolutionist that has ever come off looking good, no matter where they've debated. One thing that evolution and these fables that the Bible talks about is that there's no evidence at all for any of it. Evolution says, show me God, and I'll say, Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And it's recorded in the Bible. I say, show me that a monkey turned into a human. And they can't really speak. They'll say, oh, what happened millions and millions of years ago? But they've got nothing that you can actually hold up or prove it by. Going back to the Reformation, Martin Luther defended his newfound Reformation faith in the following five principles. And you've probably heard these before. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christo, through Christ alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. <clears throat> the Protestant Reformation was the single biggest explosion of God's power simply wrought when men and women endeavoured to go and search and read the scriptures for themselves and obviously the revelations that they contained. They found error both small and large in the institutions of their day with many millions suffering persecution and ultimately death. All because they dared to declare sola scriptura by scripture alone. As far as they were concerned, if it wasn't in the book, it didn't matter. They didn't want it. 
They didn't need it. So what does the Bible say of God's word? Now I've got a few scriptures here. You can turn with me since it's a Bible study. You can turn to a couple or three. And the first one you'll find in Psalm 119, verse 105. It's a very well-known verse. And it quite simply reads, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And without turning from there, I'll just read this one out. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 to 27 says, I know some of the men struggle with this one. Husbands, love your wives. No, that's, that's right. Those shaking her head. No, I completely love my wife. All the time, especially when she makes the dinner. Even as Christ also loved the church, he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This cleansing theme is further enhanced by John 15, verse 3. And again, don't turn to it. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And again, if we go to Isaiah 40 and 8, again, don't turn to it, just for time's sake. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I mean, personally, I think it's amazing that God's word does stand forever. And we'll talk a bit more about that shortly. And if we go to 1 Peter 1.23, again, don't turn to it. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And just one last scripture. Now, you could get hundreds on what God says about his own word. But this is personally my favorite. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a cerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now the beauty of the Bible is this clear, precise description of God's unfailing word. And these mere five verses, we can see that one, God calls his word a lamp and a light. Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. Two, Describes his word as water that cleanses and sanctifies. Jesus describes himself as living water. Three, unlike the things of the world that stands forever, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Four, it is incorruptible. I saw the Greek word for this and I thought, I'm not writing that down. But it basically means it cannot decay or perish. And five, it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we have the tools for Christian living. And we have the tools to defend our faith. Now we know what the Bible says of itself. Does the Bible actually give us proof that God was responsible for writing it? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Or I have a very hard job standing here convincing anybody. So if you turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. Beginning to read at verse 19.
we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now I've had, heard many Christian preachers that are on our God channels and all the rest of it. And uh, they would actually go against that scripture. And one such hierarchical figure I'll speak about shortly. But if that was the only verse in the Bible as Christians, and we stand in that one verse, but that's not the only one. You don't need to turn to this one. But 2 Timothy three fourteen to 17 Paul's instructing young Timothy. And he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child, reminds me of me, reminds me of my granny, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now there's two verses that tell you exactly who was responsible for the writing of the Bible. God himself. And just as I said earlier, Paul sitting in a jail cell awaiting death, and he was able to write these things. And Peter, who was the other verse, was one of the original twelve disciples. One a Sadducee and well-trained, and the other one a fisherman. And the thing that unites them is that divine revelation. So if that's not proof enough, what about our Lord Jesus Christ? During his earthly ministry, did he not quote from the Old Testament scriptures? Surely if there's a problem with God, God breathed Holy Ghost instructed writing, surely Jesus would have set the record straight. Or New Testament would be completely different. Because he would have said, disregard all that other stuff. That's not what happened. In fact, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament approximately 78 times from 24 of the 39 books. Jesus even goes a bit further in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and verse 27. Whilst walking along the road disguising his true identity, he finally reveals himself and the, and the Bible records. And beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded onto them and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So we're seeing a pattern we're seeing what God says about his own word. We're seeing what the New Testament says about God's word. We're seeing what Jesus says about the Old Testament. And I would encourage any of you tonight that if you think the Old Testament and the New Testament should be separate books, well, they're not. That's not the way God ordained it. There's 66 books, Genesis through Revelation. And they all bring something, something new, something fresh every time you read them. Further, the New Testament writers quoted from 34 of the 39 Old Testament books, leaving out only Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Now, that doesn't mean to say there was anything wrong with those books. It's just the old Hebrew Bible were grouped in different orders, and some books were actually attached to other books. So when they were grouped together, they were in three sections. There was the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. 
So when Jesus was quoting from them, he was quoting from them as, as large books and not individuals. Yet in the light of these facts, and they are facts, because those opponents of the gospel, including some Christians, would dispute a lot of these things. In an age of skeptics, Christians, including me, in my early walk, stumble in the defense of the Bible, choosing to hide behind faith. Now, what I mean by that is not that there's something wrong with faith, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. But I have seen too many Christians, when they come up against someone who's quite aggressive, and they go, oh, I believe it because it's my faith. Well, that's great, and it's very, very good. But you see, God's word is so factual that we can give a point-by-point defense against anything that comes against it. Now, I don't need to defend God's word, neither do you. God's been doing it for a lot longer than any of us. And he will continue to do it. And not meaning to be morbid, but if the Lord tarries and he doesn't return in my lifetime, then I will go to meet him. And he'll still be defending his word. And any atheist or opponent of the Bible is probably dead and buried. And the one thing they are now is an expert because they know the truth. But it's far too late. God's word will stand unchallenged, unchanged, and an unmovable object that causes all skeptics to stumble. For they have two options. If they read it, they're challenged and changed. If they don't, they will be judged. I know, through my readings, three of the most famous evolutionists. I don't know if you've you've heard of some of them. Richard Dawkins. Anybody heard of Richard Dawkins? I'll talk about him in a second. There was another one called Anthony Flew. Some may have heard of his name. He was classed as the 20th century forefather of the modern atheistic movement. But praise God, he wrote a book in 1950 or 1960 called There Is No God. He re-released it about five years ago and took out the no. It's now entitled There Is a God. Anthony Flew changed his mind and it sent absolute vibrations through the whole evolutionist atheistic movement because their loudest voice had changed his mind. And the other one is Christopher Hitchens who passed away recently. I actually read a lot of Christopher Hitchens' brother's writings. He's a born-again Christian. But Christopher Hitchens was atheist to the backbone and he held on to those beliefs until he died. The other thing about evolutionists is they will never, ever, ever challenge you in the Bible. Do you know why? They've never read it. They've never opened it. They will always tell you what they think of the Bible and what they think they know of the Bible and what they think others are telling them about the Bible. But they never really tell you about the Bible. Now, in a critical age where you're going to have to know one side from the other and proper research, and most of these guys are very, very smart, I would have thought the logical thing to do was to have your research on this side, God's Word on that side, research them both. But they don't. I have never heard an evolution versus creationist debate where they've been able to pull the Bible apart verse by verse. They just don't know it. Getting away from that, Jesus, while teaching the disciples on all the things that must come to pass in the tribulation period, now that's not futurism. 
I don't want anybody thinking that that's what I would suggest tonight. That is not a seven-year period towards the, the, the end times and all the rest. I'm fully with the pastor here. We're in a storage church. But there is a tribulation period of many, 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 many years. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So again, you see the eternal nature of the Word of God. To further emphasize the point, Jesus shows the confidence in both the Old Testament text as well as the Word of God in Matthew 4, verses 3 to 5. And when the tempter came to him, we all know this, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Does anybody know where he quoted from? Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Not only was he declaring the word of God, he was confirming the Old Testament. So why is it important to understand the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's words in Luke chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 4? I'll ask you to turn to this one. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and the very first verse. And I'm sure there's nobody here that doesn't know this. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, what was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is the eternal Word of God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, among us, bringing new meaning and new life to the Old Testament, as well as these verses stating that his words will not pass away. So Jesus was there in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. And everything that was created was his very words and his very nature. The Gospel of John is regarded, regarded by many as a theological gospel. His tone, context, and content are different to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Apart from Matthew, John was an actual eyewitness to all the things that Jesus did, therefore making it easier for John to confirm or validate the pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity past. I personally love that John opens his Gospel with three of the most important words in the Bible. In the beginning. Now, why do I say three most important words? <clears throat> You see, our entire Bible stands or fails on the Word of God. And the opening three words of the account of Genesis are in the beginning. And it seems to be the one that scholars of today and theologians seem to tremble most at. It's the one book and probably the, 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 most number of, the least number of chapters, three or four, that most modern-day theologians struggle upon. They try to twist the first three chapters of Genesis now to fit science where it shouldn't be fitting anything at all. God said it, so it was. That's why I believe John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in the beginning. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, because God said at the very start of Genesis, in the beginning, God created. A statement of fact and a statement of authority. There's no ifs, buts, maybes, sideways is, sideways that. It is a statement of fact and authority. 
God quite simply says it is, and it is so. As Christians, if we ever lose sight of the importance of why God said what he said in the time he said it, we can never properly defend it. <clears throat> now going back to your opening reading from Second Timothy, where Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, they shall turn their ears from the truth. This is widespread in the modern church. Now take the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams. I struggle to say his name. I watched a debate between him and Richard Dawkins recently. It was dated the 23rd of February, and it was at Oxford University. And obviously it was against the, the world-renowned God-denier and author of The God Delusion, Mr. Richard Dawkins. Now, Williams claims to believe many of the things that Dawkins believes. And this is a quote from him. The writers of the Bible, inspired as I believe they were, they were nonetheless not inspired to do 21st century physics. I'll read that again. This is a man who's leading the Anglican Church in the United Kingdom. The writers of the Bible, inspired as I believe they were, nonetheless, they weren't inspired to do 21st century physics. So no wonder the so-called largest Christian institution in the United Kingdom is in total disarray. I'll assume that Mr. Williams hasn't read Second Timothy or Second Peter. <clears throat> or does theology and philosophy pollute his understanding that God is not only the author and finisher of our faith, but also of the Bible? This is the interesting part. In the same debate, Dawkins admits, you can go and, you can go and watch this on YouTube, Dawkins admits to singing a hymn that very morning whilst in the shower, calling himself a cultural Anglican, whatever that's meant to mean, including the words he sang, Oh, how wonderful, how wonderful can it be, before chuckling and telling the audience that the hymn goes downhill from there. He further states in the opening address, and I quote, and I do hope you laugh at this because I did as well, the laws of physics have worked through natural selection to get together to produce gigantic collections of purposeful human beings that looks overwhelmingly as if they have been designed. They carry a terrific illusion of design which fooled humanity until the middle of the 19th century. Now we say part of that again. The laws of physics got together to produce gigantic collections of purposeful human beings that looks overwhelmingly as if they have been designed. So here's Dawkins telling us that it actually looks like it's designed. It carries a terrific illusion of design. But everybody sitting in this room tonight, we have been fooled. We've been caught out. Dawkins says, no, you're right. It looks like design. It looks like it's designed, but you know what? You're all wrong. So he admits that the world is wonderfully made, but stops short of calling it a miracle. See, that's dangerous territory for an evolutionist. Once you call them a miracle, you have to open the door to the supernatural. And they can't do that. He admits that it looks like design. But we as Christians are somehow hoodwinked by accepting the creator that created it. <clears throat> this brings to mind Romans chapter 1. 
And verse 19 reads, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Dawkins sang a hymn, so it's manifest in him. He claims the world is wonderful, too wonderful to be, so it is clearly seen. He admits it looks like it's designed, so he understood the things that are made, yet he denies it, so he's totally without excuse. And this is an old analytical saying, you've probably heard of it, it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck. Guess what? Probably is a duck. I'd say the same about the created world. If it looks like it's designed, acts like it's designed, smells and sounds like it's designed, guess what? Probably is designed. Well, we know it was designed because Almighty God declared in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning he created. His creative power. Now as Christians that really ought to be enough to convince us. But what more does the Bible offer up as proof? And I'm going to offer up five things and you can go online, you can see these things for yourself. One of them... I know Ken has spoken about before, and uh, it's, it's, it's a lot to get your head around, but it's the final point. <clears throat> so five points, and this is Bible, the Bible versus science. Who really is holding up the earth? Number one. 3,000 years ago, the Hindu scriptures recorded the earth was resting on the back of a huge elephant. And do you know where the huge elephant was resting upon? It was resting upon a turtle that was swimming in the sea. Greek mythology claims that the god Atlas was holding the earth on his shoulders. They call Christians loopy. Modern science cannot agree who discovered that the earth hung in nothing in space. But I can tell you that Job declares in Job 26 and 7. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. 3,000 years ago. Before there was a satellite sent into space, before we sent a man to the moon, poor beleaguered Job was told that the earth hung upon nothing. No god atlas, no elephant, no turtle swimming in the sea. It hung on nothing. Round or flat, for thousands of years, this is number two, thousands of years, people believed the earth was flat. If you went too far that way, that way, that way, or that way, at some point you're going to come to a gushing waterfall and you go off the side. It wasn't practically solved until 1519 to 21. However, the Bible gives two clear references to a round earth. First in Isaiah 40, 21 to 22. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretch it out, stretch, stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent and dwell in and secondly Job, Job seems to run through all these things I think God really blessed him after everything was taken away from him Job said he has compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end there God confirms he has set boundaries that last until the day and night comes to an end between two and a half and three and a half thousand years earlier. Even some of the accredited Greek philosophers, if you read about them, who proposed the ideas, and they proposed the ideas of a round earth, they were still 750 odd years after Job. So I reckon they probably found the copy of Job and taken the writings for themselves. 
But there Job and Isaiah say the earth was round. <clears throat> Mountains in the sea. Until modern times, people thought the ocean floor was sandy like the desert and saucer-shaped. This was even true of the pre-1900 geologists, but in the 1900s, oceanographers found the sea had many deep valleys of, of canyons. The deepest canyons were called trenches. The Marianas Trench in the Pacific is so deep that Mount Everest, 29,000 feet high, but was dropped into it, the peak would still be a mile below the water. There are also underwater mountains. The Atlantic Ocean contains an undersea range of mountains 10,000 miles long. So what does the Bible teach us? Well, Jonah 2, 5 and 6. The waters compass me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. Now it was 2,000 years before anything was discovered. And how did Jonah know? Because I really don't think in the midst of that turmoil where he was floating down and the, the, the big fish was coming up to open, open his mouth and swallow him whole, did he make a mental note of the mountains? Unless he did, I don't know. I don't think he saw too much on the way down. And whenever Jonah wrote this, he was in the belly of the wheel already. So it just goes to show you how accurate God's word is. And just remember, I'm giving five points. Otherwise, I'd be, I could be here all night. There's hundreds more. Number four, and this is my favorite. Does the sea have pathways? Well, we now know that thanks to an officer in the United States Navy who believed his Bible... In the 1800s, Matthew Murray was reading about the dominion man was given over the animals in Psalm 8 and verse 8. And it says in that psalm, The fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. Now he was amazed that the verse spoke of the fish and all the creatures that swim in the paths of the sea. He never knew there was such a thing. So he was determined to find them, and he went on to discover that the oceans have many paths or currents which were like rivers flowing through the sea. He wrote the first book on oceanography and became known as the Pathfinder of the Seas, the father of modern navigation. All because the Spirit of God moved in David's heart almost 3,000 years earlier. Incidentally, all fishing boats make a good catch in the currents or the paths of the sea. <clears throat> and although that point number four is my favorite, number five is probably the best, but the trickiest. So, it is my last point before I close. But, again, poor Job. And how could he have known this? Pallades, Orion, and Arcturus. Have you heard of those? Well, we all know the story of Job, wealthy and happy, and struck down with tragedy. But God reveals so much to him. And during Job's thought, he asked, asked the following question in Job 38, 31, 32. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Now, for centuries, if you read the Bible, you probably would have had no idea what those things were. And you probably would have thought they were Greek gods or some other types of things. But Garrett P. Service, the noted astronomer, wrote about the bands of Orion in his book, Curiosities of the Sky. Now bear with me on these quotes. <clears throat> At the present time, this band consists of an almost perfect straight line, a row of second magnitude stars about equally spaced and of the most striking beauty. 
In the course of time, however, the two right-hand stars, Mintanka and Alalam, will approach each other and form a naked eye double. But the third, Anatak, will drift away eastward so that the band will no longer exist. What telescopes are now showing today that all these stars that at their present time constitute the constellation of Orion are bound for different ports and all are journeying to different corners of the universe so the bands are being dissolved. Did Job not ask could these bands be loosed? It took modern telescopes to look into space to say that they are indeed being loosed. How would Job have known? On the Pleiades, Dr. Robert J. Tumpler states, over 25,000 individual measures of the Pleiades stars are now available. And their study led to the important discovery that the whole cluster is moving in a southeasterly direction. The Pleiades stars may thus be compared to a swarm of birds flying together to a distant goal. This leaves no doubt that the Pleiades are not a temporary or accidental amalgamation of stars, but a system in which the stars are bound closely by a note, close kinship. In other words, his discoveries prove that the stars and the Pleiades are bound together and are flying together like a flock of birds as they journey to their distant gold. So they're all over the place. And Job said, can't you bind them? Can't you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? Arcturus is the sun traveling at high speed. Again, another astronomer by the name of Charles Buckhalter from the Charbot Observatory made an interesting note regarding the great sun. This high velocity places Arcturus in the very small class of stars that apparently are a law unto themselves. He is an outsider, a visitor, a stranger within the gates to speak plainly. Arcturus is a runaway. Newton gives the velocity of a star under control at not more than 25 miles a second. That's under control. Arcturus is going 257 miles a second. Therefore, combined attraction of all the stars we know cannot stop him or even turn him in his path. So Job did say, Canst thou guide Arcturus? How did he know? Scientists only discovered these startling facts in the 20th century, yet they were recorded in the book of Job nearly 3,000 years ago. She would be pleased to know that's the end of my fact-finding mission on the Word of God. I haven't even spoken on the 400-plus prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, or even made an indent into the vast number of science Bible references that exist and that have existed for centuries. But the things we've established tonight are irrefutable evidence that God inspired his word to be written, his word to become flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his word to be trusted and obeyed, his word to be studied and cherished, and above all, his word to be shared amongst this nation of ours. For the Bible declares in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. And for each and every person in this room, I read this the other day, clear instruction in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. 
we have enough authority through the written word of God to walk in his ways and the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. So that's me finished. I just wanted to show you what God's word said about itself, what the Lord Jesus confirmed about his own word, and the fact that the Old Testament is true, and the fact that modern Christian leaders can't even hold to the truth of the gospel. They struggle with Genesis. And the fact that science is still trying to prove the Bible right, even though the Bible proved science for centuries. So when you're ever confronted by anybody, whether it be in school, work, or beyond, we have got enough facts to defend our faith, defend what we actually believe. Thank you. Jim, do you want to come up and get him to sing an order?